Welcome to the Over the Counter Podcast. I'm Mark Eastcheck. And I'm Andrew Whaley. Today we're going to get into something that uh, we haven't exactly talked about before, and that is sports. Sports. But not just sports. Uh, more about like the sort of social the, the social dimensions of sports. Yeah, the culture, the culture around sports and what sports mean to humans that are not playing them. So this is kind of uh, hard to parse out because sports are such a large part of our culture. We have to kind of narrow down what part of sports we're talking about. So we're not talking about taking your kids to soccer practice, right? right or going to your daughter's lacrosse game or something. That's not what we're talking about. We're not even talking about you going on a run every morning or playing in your like old man softball league. Why do I think that our audience is mostly old men? Like it's not, <laughs> right? I mean, the, the, I think we have a, we slant pretty young. I think. Well, yeah, but I don't think we have any like teenage girl lacrosse players in our. I audience. mean, I don't know. I think we might. It's possible. Okay, so I attract a young demographic because I'm so much younger than you. So yeah, as in like negative thirteen years younger <laughs> than me. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm the, a young old man, but. But we, but you know it's we're in a baseball playoff season. Yeah, well, this is the, we're talking about the, fans. We're talking about the role the sports plays as an observer in an observer's life. Aren't they? Aren't they called spectators? Spectator, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Observe, spectate. I mean, we're gonna. Yeah, but you don't. Call, I mean, you don't call them observer. I mean, you don't have like a stadium full of fifty thousand observers. That makes it sound so clinical, like they're inspecting the game as it occurs or something. Well, as if they like work for the federal government. Spectate sounds so. I I happen to be here and I happen to be seeing. No, what's because going spectators on. watch a spectacle. Okay. Right. Okay, so it's a spectacle. Okay, so we can call them spectators or fans. Yeah. So basically, but see, not all spectators are fans. Well, all right, this is a totally... We're running on a tangent already, and we haven't even told them what the topic is. So, so, uh, so we're in the midst of baseball playoff season. We're also in the midst of college football season. The Michigan Wolverines happen to be doing very well right now with three shutouts in a row for the first time since 1980. It's a big deal. Now, just for the record, the playoff season is over. Baseball playoffs? It's over. Why, because the Cardinals are out? Yeah. The, the, every se- the baseball season ceases to happen... When the Cardinals are... I still don't think they should have baseball playoffs. It should be like it used to be, where whoever had the best record won the pennant and went to the World Series. Like That's all it used to be. And now it's like all this gradation and right. one-game so thing. We would, be in the, we would be in the World Series. There you have it. See? There it is. Wisdom. Be attentive. Okay, so regardless of whatever happens with the Cardinals or with Michigan football, there is this kind of odd thing in our culture that is really, really powerful, mm-hmm. right? Which is the, the power of these sports teams to create artificially, to artificially create these communities of people right. that identify with that team. And, it, and, and what might seem like a kind of inane, just kind of fun little thing that people tend to do on weekends or whatever, actually becomes really visceral and really important to people. And what, what and okay? What kind of started with me, at least, whenever I I propose that we talk about this, is that I was kind of observing my own interaction with this, and I I am this weird fan where I do not even follow my teams. I don't watch anything now. The Broncos have become the the exception to the rule now because I live in the middle of Denver and everything runs around. So, meaning you're a Fairweather fan? 
I just don't get interested. It's inter- okay, you can admit it. You're a fair weather. Fan. I just don't get interested in sports until until the, the last until minute. the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so if I I, I I literally went from if you'd have put a gun to my head and said name one person that plays for the Cardinals, I would have said I I think Yadi Molina. I think isn't he a guy? I mean, I wouldn't have known. I couldn't tell you who the coach was. I had no idea. And I go from that to being this absolutely rabid jerk of a Cardinals fan, contra all the Cubs idiots where we work, and um, and I'm like I'm I, I'm watching every game like I can't miss it. I'm streaming it live. I'm living pitch to pitch and feeling it, and I'm like, what is that? Because I, as a person and intellectually, I'm not really attached to sports. So it got me thinking about what is it with me. And that made me think what is it about with everyone. Yeah, I mean. Because you're a sports fan all year. Yeah, I mean, I'm more of a sports fan than you are, right? Um, my, My favorite sport or my favorite team is the Michigan football team, right? Uh, of all of all the different things out there, I don't, you know, basketball and hockey and baseball are a lot harder to pay attention to because um, there are so many games. I think there's like sixty hockey games a season. Mm-hmm. There's about the same amount of basketball games. There's 150. Was 153 baseball games? 152 baseball games? I don't know. I don't um, really watch sports. That's the point. <laughs> and uh, so there's just so many games that it's just. So time consuming to pay attention to every game, right? And yeah, these people have these apps and they're well, following all stats and they're with, like totally into it. With football, it's a lot easier because there's so few games, right? Professional football is about 16 games a season, yeah. And college football has even less. You know, it's about 10. Yeah, since I've since 12. I moved to Denver, I've started watching the Broncos, and I'd say I watched two thirds of the games yeah. in a given season. But this is not the point, right? The point is not how much of a sports fan are are Andrew and I, right? The point is, like, what does that mean exactly? Like, how does that change people? Like, what? Yeah. Like, there's something deeper going on in the whole sports fan thing. Well, it's like, let's look at this. Why does it? Why would a guy like me, who kind of lives in a world of ideas? Who's kind of interested in all kinds of crazy stuff, and I'm inter- and I get bored easily, and I I want big ideas and conversation about big ideas. Why would I care about a bunch of guys changing the geographical position of a piece of pigskin filled with air? Why would I care? It has to be something other than the activity, right? And for me, I figured out that the Broncos thing is. Feeling like I'm a part of the place I live now and the community around it and my friends and the people I don't know. And it just, it's, I've never lived in a city before and I've never, certainly never lived in a city with a good football team before. And so it's kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of a being, it's kind of a belonging. The Cardinals thing, I grew up an hour south of St. Louis, going to Bush Stadium and all that. So it's like, I'm, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with, a particular afternoon in Bonterre, Missouri, whenever I was doing caricatures outside the Bonterre mines, and Keith Hernandez and Ozzie Smith sat and let me draw their caricatures, and they both gave me a $100 bill and told me to keep it when it was only $10. Now remember, minimum wage was like 
two something at the time, three maybe, and they both gave me a hundred bucks. Or like one give me a hundred bucks. That would like be a f- way to like win a, a boy's heart for a lifetime. Right. right. I got the I got to draw their pictures. They took them. They praised it and said it was so good. And then they gave me this massive amount of money that I didn't ask for, and you know hugged me and went on their way. And I was like, I bled Cardinal Red at that moment. But it was not about the sport. Really, yeah, it's well, about it's about the one we I. This, go ahead, because okay, I, I, I have me, a theory about this I want to propose. So I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which yeah. has the largest football stadium in the United States. It's it's one of the largest stadiums in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only bigger ones are like these soccer stadiums in South America. Mm-hmm. And every Saturday in the fall, when Michigan has a home game, mm-hmm. there are over 100,000 people in that stadium, <laughs> right? And I was just there, actually, just a few weeks ago. I went to a game. I at, saw the pictures at on Michigan Facebook. Stadium. With your dad, There were right? 109,000 people there. And uh, it's an amazing experience. But what's what's so funny about it is like when you step back and you think about it, mm-hmm. and you've read a little bit of ancient Greek literature, you realize, hmm, so there are all of these people going on pilgrimage to this sacred shrine mm-hmm. during the cultic season of the autumn, right? <laughs> Wearing their cultic clothing with the appropriate colors, right? And... Uh, and there are the cultic musicians that come out onto the onto the field in their uniforms, right? Their mm-hmm. cultic clothing to perform the you know the ritual music that precedes the main event, mm-hmm. right? Not only that, but you also have people you know sacrificing dead pigs to the gods of football, you know, <laughs> in in their various tailgating parties surrounding the cultic <laughs> shrine, right? And then you have what? What is it about me that when you say sacrificing pigs and compare it to like barbecuing, makes me like barbecue even more? <laughs> well, and then you have the the cultic athletes, dancers, whatever you want to call them, right? Come out onto the field and perform the ritual against the the people who are clothed in the cultic clothing from the other temple, you know, a few states away. Yeah, but I mean, so and, and, well, it's more like it's also like the gladiator and, combat too. Yeah, except nobody's dying. Yeah, but it's still ritualized combat. Sure. Well, it goes back to our ritualized violence episode, the ritualization of violence. I think, and, and then you have all of these people who are completely emotionally invested in what's going on in the field, right? They're cheering, they're yelling, they're standing up, they're sitting down, they're shaking their pom-poms, they're getting depressed when bad things happen, they're getting elated when good things happen. Right. Uh, and, and there are there are the like cultic officials, right, who make sure that the ritual is conducted according to the rules that have been prescribed by the gods of football, right? And, and they, they make sure that everything proceeds according to the script, right, and that the violence is contained within this like very organized, very systematized system of rules and regulations and laws, right? And all of the ritual needs to be performed within that within I, those constraints. I think football has that cultic aspect, but I think football is more the spectacle of gladiatorial combat. I think the, the, the cultic thing that you're describing is the liturgy of baseball. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, base, yeah, baseball has it even more. Baseball is a liturgy. You show up, and the service begins with the singing of a song. Right, and the opening pitch. Well, this, you, you, and then you sing this song where you put your hand over your heart, and you pledge allegiance and make and renew covenants 
to something bigger than this competition and bigger than all this of you. This happens at the beginning of football games too, don't forget. Well, true, yeah. And then there's the opening pitch and all that. You have the coin, the ritual coin toss at a football game. Yeah, I can see this, yeah. But I think that... And, and you also have all these arcane rules in baseball. I mean, baseball probably has even more rules Yeah, base, but baseball. Yeah, baseball has a dogma. Yeah. And baseball has... And baseball is kind of like the... How to say it? Baseball is almost more like it reminds me of the extraordinary form, the extraordinary form of the mass. There's a lot of there's a lot of silence in between the moments. Yeah, I mean, almost all of the action in baseball is the pitcher and the batter. Right, and that, I mean you're just you're everyone, just watching pitch after pitch, and after everyone pitch else after is, pitch. and everyone's just watching. Every and you're so you're kind of it's weird with baseball. You're kind of almost on the team because. All the guys on the field are doing are standing there watching like you're watching. And then occasionally, kind of like when the altar server has to say the confidier <laughs> in the extraordinary form, occasionally one of the bit players on the field gets to take part in the ritual for a second and then he goes back to watching. Well, and you, and you even have like these, like my favorite rule in baseball is the balk. Yeah. Right? Which is like one of those really arcane rules that's hard to understand. It's hard to even see. Like sometimes yeah. only one umpire sees it, not the other umpires. Yeah. And it to me, I mean, the like the rules that run a game like baseball or or football feel like Leviticus, right? I'm an old Old Testament scholar, right? So and people read Leviticus and they're like, God, this is so weird and boring. And there's all these different types of sacrifices. And they're talking about the lobe of the kidney and like how to cut <laughs> these animals in certain ways, you know, for them to be properly sacrificed. And it's just like reading like the baseball rule manual. And that's what, you know, have you ever heard um, Father Robert Barron talk about this? He talks about um, leading with the beautiful in the new evangelization. And he compares our approach to Catholicism to baseball. And he says that in the Catholic Church, when we're trying to do evangelization, we do the equivalent of trying to lead with the infield fly rule. We start with explaining the hypostatic union or the, the dual nature of the incarnation. It's a, he's like, no, no, take them to the ball game. Buy them a hot dog and a beer. Let them say the Pledge of Allegiance and the strike three and you're out of here and the seventh inning stretch and all that. And in the middle of experiencing... The big, beautiful game of baseball, someone will pop up a fly, infield fiber will apply, and they'll go, hey, what just happened? Their curiosity has been piqued in the right moment. That's the context that you explain the infield fly rule. So I went to a Rockies game. That's pretty interesting. I went to a Rockies game at the end of the season just a few weeks ago, and uh, one of the most interesting things that happened We have a baseball team here? Yeah. Well, they got a grand slam in the first inning. It was really, really great. But one of the most interesting things that happened was one of the Rockies, Rockies players bunted down the first baseline. And I honestly have never seen this before on TV or anything. And the ball just kind of trickled, trickled, trickled. Right. And it looked like it was going to go foul. Right. So the guy sprinted all the way, got to first base, and by the time the ball stopped moving, it was fair. Right? It never went foul. And so so the, the, the pitcher, the first baseman, and the umpire are all, like, crowded around the ball waiting for it to roll into foul territory, and it never does. And the guy, <laughs> the guy ends up on first base, so it was, a, it was a hit. You know, it was just so weird just watching that, thinking, why? I mean, they could, e- they could easily have picked the ball up and gotten the guy out at first, but they didn't, right? They waited because they thought it was going to go foul. It was so wild. So I, 
Okay, I have a theory about what this is, at least with the thing with baseball. And me. I think that because we're so mobile, we move and we don't live. You don't live in Michigan anymore. Right. And I think the two things that we grow up with identifying with strongly are the local sports and our religion. Right. But especially for Catholics, religion is a universal thing and it has instantations everywhere. So if you want to feel at home. Yeah, I mean, I could move to Togo and still go to Mass. Right. Yeah. And especially when everything was in Latin, it would be in the same language. Right. So you always have the, the, the home thing anywhere you go. So if you move to Denver, you can still go to Mass. But the other half of growing up is baseball. And I saw like whenever this came around, when the playoffs came around, I thought about going to a bar to watch a game. So I looked up where to watch the Cardinals, Denver, Colorado. And there was a bar, Stoney's, which is, I'm not a fan of the bar. But um, it said, um, but the, I, think, I think the website that it was on was cardinalsdiaspora.com. So it's like the diaspora. It's that. It's right, which goes back to the Jews living in the Persian Empire and being dispersed right. all over the world. Right. So you're yeah. you're you're dispersed. You're dispersed. Yeah. Right. And so if you want to, if you want a chance to reconnect with home, you can reconnect with the team, even if you're sitting in Denver, Colorado, watching on TV. I'm somehow tapping into that little kid that rode in the back of my dad's truck up to St. Louis and we would go to Bush Stadium and he would get me a hot dog and let me still drink some of his beer or something, you know, like the, the ball game thing, right? That I can tap into that thing by watching that team. That's different players, different location. It's a different stadium even now. I've never even been to the new stadium in St. Louis. But there's something about watching Cardinal baseball that reconnects me to little Andy in Deloge, Missouri. Little, the little guy. Yeah, no, I mean... Being it's, home. It's, it's really powerful. I mean, it's so powerful that it kind of starts making you think about, like, is this just bread and circuses from Caesar? Right. You know, right. I mean, like, these, these baseball stadiums and stuff get these huge endowments from, like, the state government. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it'll cost $200 million to build one of these stadiums, and they'll $100 million will come from public funds, right, from tax money. You know, like I mean, think about and, that. And somebody's and there, there are a lot of people making a lot of money off of this, and some of that we're directly paying for out of our taxes. And you're just thinking, wait, are these things really entertainments that we control and kind of like, you know, can can just sort of look at or look away? Are or, they controlling us? Yeah, exactly. Right? Or are they? Or, or is somehow the state pacifying us? Right. If it's bread and circuses by giving us these bread and circuses, and I could see this with Chicago because this is Chicago machine and all that politics and stuff. If I was a po- Chicago politician and I wanted to get something through that would normally cause an outrage, I would wait until the Cubs were in the series. And then I would put forth the city legislation or whatever, take a vote, get it passed, implement it. Because even if it was all the news, no one would notice and no one would care. Because they would all be caught up in Cubs fever, right? Obviously, people in St. Louis would be too smart for that. We wouldn't fall for it. But but no, it's like this. If there's a way to pass... Like whenever they release... Do you ever even live in St. Louis? I lived an hour south of St. Louis. Uh, Okay. 
if um, you know, like if they want to bury a story, like if the government yeah, they release it on Friday afternoon. They release it on a Friday afternoon. Well, my favorite one was when uh, oh well, there were actually two of them, right? So one was with Obama, right? When he released his long form birth certificate the day before they killed Osama bin Laden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, like wow. Okay. It's like that movie Wag the Dog or. Right, yeah, or or the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Right, and that was, was literally wagged the, the dog. day before they started bombing the heck out of Bosnia. Right, and that it was it was it was so freakishly like the movie Wagged the Dog that it was actually on the news. People were calling it that. Yeah, because I mean, it was like it was it was kind of cartoonish. It was like Monica well, Lewinsky. It didn't work with the Monica Lewinsky thing. That story ended up being bigger than Bosnia. Right. You Bosnia. know what? She's back too. She just came back. I mean, they just did a big article in the inter- in big interviews on TV. She did a TED talk about being sh- about shaming and about being driven into silence and all this stuff. And, and she's like back and speaking on a speaking tour. Like Monica Lewinsky's like, well, which is funny because she came back right as Hillary was running for president. Oops. <laughs> which I can't think is not like a subtle. Oh, jab oh. like you know one last one last poke in the <laughs> ribs you know like ah you know I'm gonna get you back you know but uh, I don't know that's more wagging the dog but so that we should do a whole episode on the different flavors of wag the dog and like all the different types of wagging the dog all the things that are like wagging the dog it's a sleight of hand except on a big scale is what that is okay. right all right. Think about that. I mean, that's, that's no, very interesting. There's a lot there. But uh, but I'm still interested in the sports thing, right? Now you know how we come up with these topics. Right. That, <laughs> that there's like this, there's like a, like almost a, like a liturgical or religious element to this. Uh, let me put it one way. So I heard one of these like New York City, you know, uh, media type people talk about when he was growing up, his parents were religious. And so the religion was Boston Red Sox and the New York Times. Absolutely, yeah. And I was thinking, that's so perfect, right? Because it's like, it's like the sacred word, like the sacred mm-hmm. page of of the New York Times, right? And the liturgy of Red Sox baseball, right? You know, so you have those two components like coexisting, and it's just so. I mean, it's so, it's so complete, and yet, I mean, of course, it's like very like vain and artificial and secular or whatever. But there's something that makes a lot of sense about it. Like whenever I was growing up in a small town in rural Missouri. My dad used to say that there's you, you never in public you never talk about politics, religion, or wrestling. <laughs> and I have not talked about wrestling in years. <laughs> it's like I grew up and ended up studying philosophy and talking about politics or religion in public all the time. But those were the three things you didn't talk about in public because people had such deep. And now I think I would add like nutrition to that. Like if you start vegan versus paleo versus vegetarian versus all this stuff, you know. Like the people get all worked up about yeah, it. Yeah, people have like a deep attachment beyond just an intellectual. Yeah, people have deep attachments to other things too, like yoga, right? Or or like their favorite brand of beer, if they're one of those people, you know. And there are a lot of different things people have attachments to. But I'm saying that if you bring up pop, if you bring up politics or religion... It's people are going. Things are going to get heated, and, and and tempers are going to flare, and feelings are going to be hurt. Yeah. But sports is kind of the same in the same category. Oh, but I think sports is a way for people to connect. I mean, there, I mean, 
if how you're many, on the same side. I mean, how many of those relationships have you seen, like father and son type things, where like you can't talk about anything with your dad except when you're like watching sports together, right. and for some reason it becomes like this kind of language through right. which you can talk about other things. But it's like oh, it's kind of like that with me and my dad. We could talk about the weather and. The Cardinals are doing pretty good. I mean, it's like, you know, not not detailed, but, but what's weird about it's it, a like, say it's a safe topic to bring up. Yeah, it's it's not that it's not that other topics are off limits or something or that even your conversation is restricted to sports, right? But that somehow it it can become this like mode of communication in and of itself. Like while you're watching the game, mm-hmm. it becomes like a hmm. And the, and the through talking about what's going on on the screen, Right or what's going on with that team or what's going on with that player, you're able to kind of like sort of surreptitiously or in a sublimated way talk about other things. So like when when you picture in your mind, grown up David or Adam like just painted blue and like screaming at like a Michigan game or whatever like in there with colors, does that like give you like a special feeling in your heart? You know, like that's my boy. He loves the same team. You yeah, know I don't saying? think I quite have that going on. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, think I was just trying to get at it from the father's perspective because you're talking about father's son. Yeah. But you have little ones, so it's like you yeah, haven't got to experience it, it yet. Yeah, I think it might. I might have to wait until they can talk more. But are you like, like I can't wait to take them to a game? You want to share that with You feel like the desire to share that with I, them? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. All right, we'll wait until they're older and we'll yeah, figure it out. we'll figure it out. I think you're going to, like, take them to the game and they're going to love it because they're going to, like, ha- see how much you love it. And then when they love it, they're going to love it because you love it. But when they love it, you're just going to love the fact that they love it. You're just going to be, like, super stoked. Which I think is fine. I'm not saying that's bad. I think it's good, actually. But, but, it's, it, but, I, but what is that? What is it about? I think, well, you know what it is? I think it's fairly simple. You know, like what Tiwa talks about, you know, like two people being united in a common good. And that's love, right? They're united by this common good, right? I think it's just that simple. Two strangers wearing the same colors, feeling the same disappointments and depressions, and then turning around because they got a hit and screaming and yelling. You feel a kinship. And there's yeah, a community. No, that's true, right? And I mean, I think the same thing can happen... Uh... Like when you drink a very good bottle of wine together, right? Or when you have an excellent meal together. I don't know what you're talking about. Or when you experience the same concert together, this kind of thing. But I think the barrier to entry with sports is a lot lower than many of those other activities, right? That you can be the kind of casual fan like yourself, right? Uh, And be the the Fairweather fan who only shows up at the playoffs, you know? Uh, and, And still enter into it. Whereas I think with a lot of other types of cultural experiences there's a much higher bar to just get in the door yeah. like if you want to be like a fan of like modern classical music yeah you have to like work at it you know or like if you want to understand the art at the art galleries in cherry creek you really have to like read and study and learn and go to a lot of art mm-hmm. shows before you even like kind of get it whereas with sports it's so easy i mean the whole thing is reduced to numbers yeah but i think it's more like I mean, how many points does your team have? You grow up in an experience. So, like, a good example. Like my friends who and Justin in California play music all the time. And their kids have grown up 
seeing their parents happy and this thing that's so important to them, playing music, going to their shows, and music is this huge part of their life. Now, as the, you know, Elijah's, I think, 13, 14 now, and he's starting to, like, play some music. He's starting to learn how to play a little bit. And each of the kids, and little, little, little bitty Maury, I mean, he's like two, three. They he, His favorite thing on earth is when they actually turn the mic on and lower it down. And they play, and he can sing with them. And he can actually hold notes and hit stuff. And it makes his dad, like, super happy. And you can see this incredible joy in this little bitty kid's face when his daddy will let him sing through the mic like he does. So I think that they're going to grow up with music and the playing of music being something that unites them as a family. And then when they experience that outside of the family, they'll have a, it'll arc with them, so to speak. And it'll, it'll hit this, Mm -hmm. this, this domestic kind of like historical love. Right. Well, I think it's the same thing when you grow up watching your dad, watch the games and then your dad's like, hey, we're going to the ball game. And you get dressed up and you get to spend all afternoon with dad who takes you to the ball game. I mean, I think it's kind of the same thing. It's the it's something you grow into over time and you develop all these internal attachments to because of the people that you love. Well, and, uh, and this is where I think the rubber meets the road with the kind of like larger sociological question with this. And that is that, you know, before the automobile. Uh-huh. Right, you lived in your local community, yeah, and you interacted with the same people every day, and your identity in many ways was shaped by that small community. Whether it be, you know, the small community like the small town where you like live in a farming town or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, the other few hundred people that live there, or whether it be your block in New York City, right? Like, there's a way in which the pedestrian community, like everything that was within walking distance, that was the world that you lived in. You know, and, and since the invention of the automobile and, of course, the telephone and the internet and all of this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, that world doesn't exist anymore. Like, you, I mean, if you, can, you can try really hard to, like, develop a pedestrian community in your own little way, but it would be more like, a, like an idiosyncratic project than, like, something that everybody's participating in. Because all these people that are around you every day, you know, live in different neighborhoods or different places, and they're on their phones, and they're on the internet. and so. Or even if you do have a neighborhood that's kind of walkable, and people are outside, and they do all that stuff, most of the people in that neighborhood are not from that neighborhood. Oh, yeah, of course They not. move someplace from someplace sure. else. Right. But then you look at, like, these small towns, like the one I grew up in, or you see, like, on TV, like that show Friday Night Lights, or that movie Friday Night Lights, where it's all... These towns that live and die and breathe about like high school basketball or high school football, where it just takes over the town. Like this one team, and they're really good, and they've been good for years. And all the dads played on that team when they were in high school, and now the kids are playing on the teams. And it's like, I mean, it just takes over the town. But this is not the common experience. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people that have never had that experience. No, I mean, I mean I, I'm not saying it doesn't exist at all. It does exist. In no, some it exists in like in Texas States. and Missouri and Arkansas and kind of like you know some of the more in the in the South and in the Midwest. I think more than it does, uh, and, and it's mostly in very rural areas. But I think for a lot of people, like they don't have that experience, and so like their experience of connectedness with other people on a wider scale has to be this like really sublimated kind of thing. Yeah, where they're not really living in relationship with the people who live in the walking distance. They might not even know the names of their neighbors. Right. Right. But somehow by participating in something like 
watching the Broncos play, right? They can feel connected to this like larger group of people that mm-hmm. they're not really in relationship with exactly, mm-hmm. right? And but then and then when you move to another place, right, and you retain your loyalty to that original team or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that it's a way of like feeling connected with these other people that also have that same passion. You know? Right. Um, okay, so so this is where I think, I, I just think it gets really fascinating with where we're headed with, I mean, we've talked about this a lot before, about digital community mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. uh, and tribes and things. And, and basically, I view this as like a really negative thing about the internet era, where you have these people who get connected with one another, seems like a good idea, right? They're mm-hmm. getting connected, they're... Uh, sharing common interests and this kind of thing. But then you get like subdivided into these little tiny splinter groups, right? So you have like an internet community of hackers and like an internet community of people interested in Weight Watchers and an internet community of people who... Collect like, dispensers. Yeah, or people who like parakeets or whatever. And so there are all of these like idiosyncratic, weird communities of people that are real communities. Okay, you better not talk bad about parakeets. Right. Because me and my parakeet forum... So, <laughs> so you've got all of these different communities living on the internet right. of these people and and then you're thinking well wait a second but like you're 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 having all of these conversations and these relationships with people that you've never met face to face that you're never going to be in the same room right. with and you don't know the names of your neighbors yeah right? and, what... and, and 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 not only that but you're like you're getting so accustomed to communicating with people that are very similar to you in some ways right because they have, right. they have these same interests that you're not spending a lot of time communicating with and having conversations with people that are different from you. And I know this I know this from myself because like I I purposely stay I, I you know you can go through Facebook and like you have all these friends. Like I have like a 1200 friends or something on Facebook. And so then I can go through and I can choose who I want to see their stuff and I don't I want to stay friends with this person but I don't want to follow them. So they won't show up in my feed. I'm not reading the articles they're linked. And so I went through and I did that for a while really carefully. And I saw that my my news feed was just homogenous. It was the same Catholic apologetics article 15 times. stuff. So I purposely went back in and I got some of my liberal friends, a couple of my gay friends, these different people. I put them back on the follow list so that I would see their... Things that they're linking and saying and watching and all this stuff. Because I saw myself falling into that. Even though I think that Catholicism and all this stuff is true. I found, I found myself falling into this group think. Where there's nothing coming across that was going to challenge me anyway. Tell me how anyone else thinks about this stuff. And now luckily, because of what I, what I do for a living. I mean, I'm exposed to that in person for across the counter constantly and but right, not, he, he, okay so this but is not this, as much because no, i work this with is my, my, the bar i work in right now is in a right, catholic grad right, school right so i don't get as much of that what's interesting know? though even about like the coffee shop like and, and all of your ideas about like the community and the coffee shop and like building community and like relationships that happen mm-hmm. in the coffee shop like that's an artificial version mm-hmm. of what used to naturally happen like in a small town or mm-hmm. on your block in new york city like that, those are the kinds of conversations that people used to have on a daily basis because they went to the grocery store every day or they, they met the same people at the bus stop every day or they... You know, well, they, I would argue it's not they artificial. They interacted. It's not artificial. It's a, it's a new form of the same thing. 
we used to shop every day. So you go out to the Agora, you go out into the marketplace, right? We don't shop that way. And then we, then it was like in, in Germany, it was the beer yeah. garden. I, in early America, it was the general store where you I go buy I think it's buy artificial it. because you don't have to go to the coffee shop every day. You don't have to have a cappuccino every day. You well, know? I'm, it's artificial, but it's 500 years old of artificial. I mean, Vienna, and I mean, it's like, it's been around. Yeah. I, I had coffee in coffee houses in Vienna that were older than our country. And there's been an unbroken succession of family only the same place. So it's, I, mean, I think it's an institution at this point, third places in general. And they, they've always been there, right? You know, back in ancient times, it would have been the well. <laughs> you know, you got you have to go sure. get water, right? As you're standing around waiting, someone's filling their bucket, you got to kill some time. Hey, did you hear that Harvey's camel died? Yeah, I heard about that. That's a damn shame. We should help. We should take up a collection for Harvey to get a new camel. I mean, it's the same thing. It's yeah, just, I guess. I guess to me, it just feels like coffee, water, yeah, the a well, jar of pickles, the, and some the crackers. Well, at the, the well store. in the village in the ancient world would be a dire necessity, right? Whereas the coffee shop in suburbia in modern Denver is a dire necessity. You, you know, wanna, it's just like you don't want to fall asleep at the me, wheel, do you? <laughs> Come to me, on, there's man. just no comparison. Like, because that one person has a car. Like, they drove to work. They could go to ten other coffee shops within like a ten minute radius. Well, and that's you know what, what I mean? and so it does tribe itself out a little bit because you go to, but and people intrinsically seem to go to shops where everyone isn't homogenous. I used to go to a shop in California, in Ventura. It was called the Daily Grind. There's a Starbucks there now on Maine and Colorado. I mean, Maine in California, and it was it was a goth coffee house, and I would go to it because they were open till like four o'clock in the morning, or they maybe twenty four hours. So I couldn't sleep. I go to the shop and study, and it was full of people who were dressed like vampires and had like cake white huh? makeup, huh? and they all thought they were like huh? Victorian vampires or something. So you think that's a pretty exotic place? It was one of the most boring places you've ever been. Because everyone was really, really different in the exact same way. Yeah. But now, and I've seen this happen. I have literally seen this happen. Did you happen. have black fingernail polish? What's that? Did you have black fingernail polish? I Not then. I may have had black fingernail polish at one point in my life. Not always, just for shows. But I um, I have seen, I have literally seen this happen. I have seen a goth kid sit and have coffee next to a Catholic priest and end up in a conversation where they're comparing notes and talking about little tricks and tips about wearing black all the time when it's kind of hot outside. I've seen I've seen a priest and a goth have a fashion conversation about wearing black before. Now that's something that can't happen in the produce aisle. <laughs> and I don't think that even happens in the Agora, you know. I think that there's a something particularly beautiful about the cafe that allows communication between people that are very, very different. That's why I champion it so much. It's the anti-tribal thing. Okay, okay, okay. So I, I happen to poke at one of your... Like, well, you poked at the vision of your, my entire life. Sacred, what is it called? Sacred cow? It's, yeah. it's what I do for a living. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, I believe in this, dang it. Well, uh, whether you happen to be going to the football game this Saturday or watching the baseball, play, baseball playoffs or going to a 500-year-old coffee shop, we don't really know what your sacred cow is, but we do know that you've arrived at the end of another episode of the Over the Counter Podcast. I'm Mark Giesecheck. And I'm Andrew Whaley.